The sermon you're about to listen to is from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome and good morning, y'all. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and I'm glad that y'all are here with us. This is our fourth and final week in our four-week teaching series called The Four G's, uh, where we're focusing on four characteristics of God. And uh, looking forward... Uh, in regards to our preaching and teaching here at the Axis, um, our hope is that after the new year, in, end of January, after our vision series, we'll be getting into the Gospel of John. Where we'll probably be hanging out there for two or three years. Um, yeah, uh, it's kind of our pace here. Um, we spent 104 weeks in Luke, uh, so we'll probably spend at least that many in John. Really looking forward to that. Um, and then before that, we're going to be in Advent, you know, the end of, of November, uh, leading up to Christmas. And then in between now and Advent, we're going to be guiding us through 10 weeks through the Old Testament. Um, we're going to be looking at types or shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, it, this, this concept of finding Christ in the Old Testament, which is what he taught his disciples after he rose from the dead and was walking with a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, he opened their eyes concerning all the things about the Christ in the Old Testament. So we're going to be looking for those shadows um, of Christ in the Old Testament. I believe it'll change the way that you view the Old Testament in a lot of ways. It makes it very exciting. Um, hopefully our reaction will be what the disciples' reaction was when Jesus opened their eyes to who he was in the Old Testament. Their hearts burned within them. Um, it's very, very exciting. Cannot wait for that. Start that next Sunday. But my hope for this four-week series here is that we would better understand God, um, to better apply truths about who God is to our everyday life, um, in the grind of life, practically, unpacking who he is theologically, and not just letting it stay in our brains, but let it impact our hearts and actually uh, change us in how we live and how we, how we handle life's situations, good and bad, how we handle each other and so forth. And, and understanding satisfaction in him and contentment that comes through who he is and what he's done for us. Um, over the last three weeks, we've looked at the greatness of God, the glory of God, and the goodness of God. And today we're focusing on God being gracious, the graciousness of God. God is great, he's glorious, he's good, and he's gracious. And because these are true, it should impact and inform aspects of our daily life, practically speaking. Um, hopefully you've got one of these at some point over the last few weeks. If not, we've got some that you can have out in the lobby on your way. Put them on your fridge. Anything that's magnetic, I guess, uh, or metal, it'll stick to. Um, but like, for instance, we looked last week at God is good. There's often something within us um, where we, we need something more. That's what we call the idol of our heart in regards to not embracing the truth that God is good, practically speaking. Um, and if that's true for you, then you have some of these. This is true for me, unfortunately, is we often complain. We're, we're rarely genuinely thankful or jealous of others. Uh, we tend not to be generous with other people, um, and we're just discontent with, with a lot of, of our life. And what we need to believe about Jesus and what he's done for us is that he's God's good gift to us and that he's more than enough. And we're living out of the abundance of who we are in Christ rather than living out of scarcity in search for something that we already have in him. Um, so 
This morning, we're going to be focusing our attention there to the grace of God. And here's how it attaches. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves to others. Friend, you don't have to prove yourself to others or to God because he is gracious. And there's often a lot of sin in our lives that can be drawn back to an unbelief in this very truth. We know that God is gracious, yet we don't allow it to speak into our daily life. And so we experience a lot of wasted time, energy, emotion, clumsiness, because we're simply not believing that he's truly gracious. There's often a lot of running around, um, rushing to and fro, practically in our day-to-day lives, when we're not applying this truth to our everyday life. So I want to unpack how God being gracious is connected with us trying to prove ourselves. I want to ask a couple leading questions to get us going. Have you ever... Have you ever done something to prove yourself to others? Like, have you ever gone out of your way and maybe try to do something maybe over the top to show somebody how much you care? To show show them that you're there for them, available for them, all right? Do you often feel like you're living your life sort of on a stage, performing daily for your value and for your worth? Uh, Do you ever feel that your identity is in what you do and what you produce, not just in who you are? Do you find it difficult to say no to somebody or not right now? Do you find it difficult to say that because down deep you fear what they think of you if you say no? So you overcommit. Are you often late to things? because you struggle with saying no. And so you cram your schedule trying to please everybody. And in a way, you're never fully present. Me neither, to none of these, I'm perfect. Um, Just kidding. Um, This is often my resume. Um, A lot of times when we take time to stop, which is tough these days, when we take time to reflect, which is tough these days. But if we did, we could find a direct line from our sin back to a persistent pursuit of performing in front of other people. We want to prove ourselves to our, our spouse, our children, our coworker, our boss, our roommate, our neighbor, our parents, our significant other, someone at the salon, someone at the gym. And so we've got to look a certain way. We've got to do something to have others think of us in a positive way. We want to do whatever it takes to get on their good side, right? We want to do something to get positive recognition and attention, constantly performing, really never just resting and just being in the moment for what it is. So as we're in a conversation with a friend, a coworker, a boss, we're in a conversation with them verbally, audibly, but within there's another conversation where as we're in this conversation wondering, what do they think of me? Am am I, am I cool? Am I enough? Like, oh my gosh, I responded, I'm so dumb. Like they're, they're, yeah, I'm ruining this. Do they, do you think they like me? Have I, have I, have I done enough good to still be one of their close friends? Who's outperforming me in their life and how can I get to the top of their list? Do they think I'm good enough? 
I mean, it's relentless. The second conversation that's constantly going, we're performing to prove, we're, to prove our worth to them, but we're also performing to prove something to ourselves. We want to teach ourselves that we're unique and valuable and worth something. But we also perform in order to judge other people who aren't as good as we are. Because that helps us sort of validate ourselves. It makes us feel better about ourselves because we got our stuff better together than they do. But then we really rarely feel good about ourselves. You see, when we base our, our lives on our performance, what else takes place is we often can't handle criticism. We have excuses that come up. Well, no, if you knew the whole story, like it really wasn't my fault. If you, let, me, let me share the whole big picture because what you, what you saw there was just a portion of it. We, there's always an excuse. There's always a reason. We lack the ability often, if this is something we struggle with, to just admit when we're wrong because we're afraid that's gonna demote us on the friend list and value list of others and even God to ourselves. And when failure comes our way, we try to avoid failure. We try to excuse it away. But, but when failure does come to us, we, we can't simply look at it as, man, I'm just a person. I'm just human. I'm clumsy. I messed up. I overplanned. I'm so sorry. So our whole world falls apart. Our whole world shatters when we fail. Or we'll go to the other extreme and we'll pretend it never even happened because we can't deal with this disappointment. Anytime we fail in that moment, we believe that we're defined by that failure. When we mess up, it's like, it's not that I failed and messed up, it's like, I am a mess up, I am a failure. And doing this, we're allowing that performance, our daily performance, to define who we are. We're allowing it to, de to determine our worth and we're ignoring the grace that's available to us, forgetting it entirely, and we can't rest. It's relentless. We've got to prove ourselves. And when we respond this way, we're bouncing between being proud of ourselves and jealous of others. Proud of ourselves, jealous of others. Proud, I earned what I'm getting. I, I earned the credit I'm getting. Jealous, man, they don't deserve all that credit. I mean, they don't need that much recognition. Unless, we were, unless the roles were reversed and be like, ah, I should have I gotten more recognition than what I actually got. I mean, they don't really know how hard it, took, how hard it worked to, to get what I got. And we often find it difficult to say thanks, to look someone in the eyes and say, I thank you for this. Because we feel like we deserved it, entitled to it. It was expected. And you know what? We might make a joke of it, but down deep, I don't like you because you didn't invite me. I feel hurt because you didn't invite me. I mean, I've done so much for you. The people you invited, they haven't done nearly what I've done for you. I mean, I've proved to you that I'm a good friend. I'm faithful. They haven't proved that to you, not to the degree that I have, and you're inviting them and not inviting me? This isn't fair. I'm done. You don't give me the credit that I know that I deserve. But also, we might make a joke of it, but down deep, I don't like me because you didn't invite me. Apparently, I'm not enough to be invited in. I'm worth less than the people that you invited. I don't, I don't know who to be, and I'm trying. I don't know how to act to be invited into this group. I'm trying my best. 
I don't even know who I am anymore because I'm trying to be whoever you want me to be to be invited and included. Who is it that I need to be? What does grace mean? Grace is freely given, unearned goodness and favor. Freely given, unearned favor. Undeserved kindness. Unearned approval. Undeserved sincere courtesy. All of this shown to those who don't deserve it. More than that, given to those who deserve the complete opposite. God is gracious. You do not have to prove yourself. Now, here's what I mean by God being gracious. Abraham Booth, who pastored in London for nearly 40 years, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, he said this about God's grace. God's grace is the eternal and absolute, free favor of God, shown or manifested in the free giving of spiritual and eternal blessings to the guilty, not the hardworking, to the guilty, disqualified, unworthy. God's, he's gracious to all people. This is known as common grace, where God is good to everybody. He allows people to live, that's grace. He restrains sin, that's grace. He restrains his wrath, that's grace. He gives blessings to all, earthly blessings to all. He causes those who aren't Christians yet to do good and to experience good, to receive good. He causes those who aren't Christians yet to know the truth. That's common grace. God gives saving grace, or what's known as divine grace, to those who believe in Jesus Christ. A.W. Pink wrote this, divine grace is the sovereign and saving favor of God exercised in the giving of blessings upon those who have no merit in them and for which no compensation is demanded from them. There's no exchange for the service, just given. God shows favor not merely to those who don't already have his favor, but God also shows favor to those who deserve the very opposite. They deserve his wrath. God's grace cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. It cannot be worked for. It cannot be won as if it's a prize. If it could be, it would no longer be grace. For it to be grace, the one getting it has to know that they did nothing to receive it, that it's not fair that they have it, and it makes no sense that they get to experience it. Grace is pure charity. It's, it's entirely unasked for charity. It's undesired charity to those who don't deserve it and most often to those who don't even want it. It's given to them. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11 and verse six, if it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of your actions, your works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's not grace and your performance on the table. If that's it, then it's not grace. Grace is grace when there's nothing else on the table. Or better, with it being grace, there is something on the table, and it's the trillions and trillions of reasons why you'd never deserve what's being gifted to you, and the table's wiped clean, and you get all the good in favor instead. That's grace. Second Timothy Chapter one and verse nine says, it was God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, what we do, but because of his own purpose and 
grace, which he gave us in Christ before I was even born, before I even had a chance to earn it or not, before the ages began. And when there's a phrase like that, I always I go to the front of my Bible and beginning of Genesis chapter one, I'll write in there, second Timothy one, nine, because that all, that's, that's something that took place before he created the heavens and the earth. That's wild. That's grace. His grace enables us to believe. His grace causes us to believe. Faith is a gift of God's grace. Without God's grace, we're nothing. I mean, the, the grace of God is God showing goodness to people who deserve only his wrath and who expect nothing from him but his wrath and judgment. God is gracious, meaning that he doesn't act favorably to us because we've done something deserving. He acts because he's gracious, not because we've deserved him to act. That would not be him being gracious. He is gracious. It's who he is, meaning he acts for us and in spite of us. So why fight to perform for your worth? Why struggle if it's already been graciously given to you, declared over you? Why try to earn it if he's already given you all that you need and he's already declared your value and that value is not based on what you do or don't do, it's based on what Christ has done, his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. You don't have to perform, you don't have to try to earn. Jesus Christ did this. Well, the truth of the matter is we actually have performed. And we have uh, earned death and damnation and separation. That's our resume. We worked real hard and we're damned. Best case scenario. So then all of life beyond that is unmerited favor. It's grace. Anything above the grave is grace. Every breath that you have is grace. It's something that you don't deserve. In fact, you ever thought or said or heard, man, you deserve better. Ultimately, that is false. I get the sentiment, but ultimately, it's wrong. If you feel like you deserve better, you will not ever view grace as amazing. You will only consider it as due, as earned. And all throughout Scripture, it's God giving people what they don't deserve. Adam and Eve, they cosmically rebel against God. He said there's one rule. They break the one rule. Like there's one no and infinite yeses. And our first parents were like, mm, I want to break that one. And what does he do? He doesn't instantly destroy them. He does two things. One, he kills an animal, puts their skin covering over them to cover their shame and sin. Two, he sends them away from his presence. Otherwise they would be destroyed. And that's the end of humanity. In the Old Testament, you've got the children of Israel. They escape Egypt, the iron furnace, where they were ridiculously destroyed as slaves, harmfully treated. Moses, Aaron, bring them out of Egypt into the wilderness. They complain. You brought us out here to starve? He rains down manna like Krispy Kreme donuts every morning for them. They complain. We're thirsty. You brought us out here to kill us with thirst? They hit the, Moses hits the rock and water comes from the rock so they're able to live and have water, which is a picture of Christ being struck for our refreshment in the desert, which we'll get to that over the next 10 weeks. Jonah, the most racist man in the Bible, he runs in rebellion from God out of racial hatred and disobedience. What does he get? A second chance. 
And he gets to see the greatest revival in the history of humanity when Nineveh turned and believed God. What do you have that you don't deserve? Everything. But to give you a few, the Bible, Jesus, food, laughter, home, car, bike, family. You get to be part of a local church. You, you get to sit in padded seats in a climate-controlled room and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got a toothbrush, some of you. You've got air conditioning. You've got vitamins. You've got medicine. You've got soap. You've got doctors. You've got dentists. You've got breath. You've got water. You've got shoes. If you had to take a minute to select which shoes you're going to wear into this building today, you're wealthier than over 80% of all living people on the earth today. We either see these as undeserved favor of God or we see them as things we earned, what we deserve. And we talk about God being gracious in salvation up here. But in the day-to-day -day life, we've got to prove ourselves and we either earn it or we don't. We perform for our worth. But the gospel says that we can't earn anything from God. We don't have to prove ourselves. Actually, we've earned isolation and we graciously get community and friendship. We've earned death, we get eternal life. We earn separation, we get reconciliation. We earn abandonment, we get rescued. We earned orphaned, we get adopted, and we have the inheritance of a king's family. And unless we see that we're truly hopeless sinners, rebels will never celebrate the grace of our divine rescue. It should never make sense, never make sense. And grace isn't really grace until it makes you uncomfortable because it seems too good. But the problem with considering grace amazing these days is that we have way too high of opinions of ourselves. And, and when we perform for our worth, trying to prove ourselves, <laughs> it's functionally Christian karma. It's not grace. Believing in like this Christian karma, it's like when I do something good, I expect things to go well. At least better for me than those who don't like God. Right? When, when, when I believe in this Christian karma, it's like when I do something bad, I think back, when did, oh, I didn't read my Bible this morning. That's why this has happened. That's why I've got this flat tire. Read the Bible, Jeremy, so this won't happen. That's Christian karma. That's not Christianity. This reminds me of the prodigal son story in Luke 15. It goes like this. Jesus was given a story, a parable. There was a man who had two sons, a wealthy man, you'll see. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. He divided his property between his two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered, recklessly spent his property recklessly living out this way. And when he had spent everything, it got worse. A severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need, which is more than most of us understand. Like he was truly in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. I just wish I had the pig slop. I'm so hungry. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, which is grace, when he kind of snapped out of his rebellion for a second, got a moment of clarity, that's grace. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants, again, he's loaded, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna go to my father, and here's what I'm gonna say. Father, I have sinned. I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He rehearsed this, he had it down. He was learning this apology. Verse 20, he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, which means at some level he was still looking for his boy which is grace. And he felt compassion. Did he earn that? No, that's grace. And his father ran, a humiliating act in this day and age, this culture, for a man to run. He runs, not to send his son further away, but he embraced him. He even kissed him. He didn't deserve any of this. And the son said to his father, he had it rehearsed, remember? Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called. He had so much more planned to say, but grace interrupts our apology. And his father interrupts him and says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe in the kingdom and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, which represents sonship. Put shoes on his feet. Oh, this is grace. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let's eat. Let's celebrate. This is my son. And he was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. And look at him. He's found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came, he drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing. I understand hearing music. It's different when you hear dancing. It's rowdy, right? They're getting down on this celebration thing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what's going on? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father's killed a fattened, the fattened calf, reserved for the biggest of celebrations. He knew which one he was talking about, the one reserved for big moments. He has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. So his father, out of grace, comes out and entreated him. And he answered his father, look, that lets you in on his tone. These many years I have served you, okay? And I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, when he came, who, by the way, has devoured your property with prostitutes nonetheless. You killed the fattened calf for him? I want to be celebrated, Dad. I've earned it. He hasn't earned it. This is to be for me, and you're wasting it on him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that's mine is yours. Not just what you have. Everything that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate. It was fitting to be glad. This is your brother. He was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, like he was gone, and he's found. The father's love towards the younger rebel 
is grace. Unmerited favor. The older rebel's anger towards the father's love for the rebel, I'm proving myself and I deserve what he's getting. I deserve the party. And the big brother chooses to stand outside the celebration of grace. Totally misses it because he's all about what he has earned. Complaining about how hard he has worked. Complaining about how faithful he has been. Which lets you in on his motive. He was hoping he was earning something through all his obedience. So it wasn't for the father. It was really for himself. It was leverage. My obedience is leverage. It's not because I'm loving my dad in this way. I'm doing it so that it comes back around. That's not Christianity. He was complaining also about the father's reckless actions. But you know, when we read that story, we like the younger son. We like to identify with him. We come to our senses, we come home, we get the celebration. But often we play the attitude of the older son. We love to be judgy. We want to be received and welcomed like the younger son, but we like treating others the way the older one treated the younger. And we long to hear, great job from anybody, anywhere. I mean, it's why half of us pick up our phones and look at social media. Who liked it? Who shared it? Who approved of it? Who didn't? And why didn't they? Right? We want others to approve of us, to recognize us, to celebrate us. My friend, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. It is God celebrating you. You will never find it through another person. You'll never find it through the future spouse that you think is going to complete you. You'll never find it in your current spouse. You'll never find it in your 401k. You'll never have enough money to be feel celebrated. Words are cheap. You've got to look with your eyes at the cross of Christ and there you'll see what you are worth. There you will see your approval. It's the cost of God's son. He sent him to buy you back from death and hell and sin and from his own judgment. He gave up his son to redeem you. And we can waste so much time, so much energy trying to prove ourselves I want to work so that God will be happy with me. I want to do good so that God will respond favorably. God isn't responding like I want him to, not as quickly as I want him to. I must have not done enough. Call up the church office. Hey, is there something I can do around the church building? I, 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 just, I, I just want to help out because we're thinking, man, if we do these things, we're going to get extra credit. We're not resting in our identity in Christ. Down deep, we believe that if we obeyed God, he'd love us better. But the gospel says that it's because God has loved us that we can now obey. Down deep, we believe the world is filled with good people and bad people. The gospel says the world is full of nothing but bad people. And they either believe Jesus or they don't believe Jesus yet. Down deep, we believe that you should trust in what you do as a good moral person. The gospel says that you should trust only in the perfect sinless life of Jesus Christ because he alone is the only true, good, moral person. In fact, scripture goes further and it tells you to not trust yourself. It says to second guess yourself, but never second guess God. In our reading plan this morning, Proverbs chapter three, trust in the Lord with all that you have, with all of your heart, go all in and do not lean on your own understanding. 
Heaven forbid, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean into what's normal and natural from within. Second, guess that. Check it with what he says here. And if your natural inclination says one thing, he says another, you're wrong. You have to live this way. And this is best. This is good. This is loving. This is for your good. In all your ways, you acknowledge him. He's going to make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. That is foolishness and conceit. Instead, you humble yourself, you fear the Lord, and you turn away from evil. And you know what? It's going to end up being healing to your flesh. It's going to be refreshment to your bones. It's going to be what you're looking for. It's very different than follow your heart. God says, don't follow your heart. Follow God. Follow my word. Give me your heart. Follow me. The goal of us trying to prove ourselves often is trying to get things from God like health and wealth and insight and power, control and certain relationships. But the goal of the gospel is not gifts that God gives, but it's God as the gift given to us by grace as he is the greatest gift. Proving ourselves, working hard for ourselves is is about what we have to do. But the gospel is now what I get to do. Uh, Proving ourselves sees hard times in life as God being mad at me, punishing me. But through the gospel, we see hard times in life as sanctifying affliction. It's gracious discipline that reminds us of Christ's sufferings. And it's God treating me as a child, making me more like his son. Proving ourselves is all about us. The gospel is all about Jesus. Seeking to prove ourselves leads us to an uncertainty about our standing before God. Have I done enough? But the gospel leads us to a very certain understanding about who we are before God because of the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Proving ourselves, it'll it'll either put us in two ditches. There's pride or despair. Pride because we think we've earned something better and we're better than other people or despair because someone's better than me. We're constantly tossed between these two. But the gospel ends this by humbling us and giving us a confident joy, knowing that this is God in us, for us, through us, in spite of us. Living as if God is not gracious is living as if the gospel's a lie. You see, our sin, this is bad news, by the way, our sin by birth and by choice because of our first parents has ruined our relationship with God. And rather than experiencing his approval through a relationship with him that's living and vibrant, our sin against him only brings his wrath and his judgment. That's the only attention that we have. We've got no hope in and of ourselves. There's nothing we can do to reconcile this relationship or to fix this relationship with God. It's completely, entirely broken and ruined eternally. And this was our first parents' problem, Adam and Eve. It's your problem. It's my problem. It's our shared problem. And this is the source, by the way. Sin is the source of death. It's the source of division. It's the source of discontentment. It's the source of brokenness and bitterness and restlessness. Sin is the source of disapproval and unhappiness, displeasure, uh, dissatisfaction, annoyance, condemnation, animosity, hostility, aggression, resentment, opposition, anxiety, and irritation, and so forth. And this is the source. Sin is the source of that feeling down deep that something's just not right. It's mankind did their own thing in their own way, and they're living in separation from God. It leaves us, sin leaves us having to prove something to ourselves and prove something to God, but we can't. Our good is never good enough. 
But the gospel teaches us that Jesus came and performed perfectly for us so that we can now experience the grace of God in our lives. It's as if the gospel shouts to us, Jesus has made you good enough. You see, God knows that we have no hope in our performance. Do you? God knows we have no hope in our performance. He understands this better than we do. This is the very reason he sent his son Jesus to us, God in the flesh, to work perfectly for us. He lived perfectly for us. He died as us. He killed death and sin for you. He gives you hope that never disappoints. In Colossians chapter 2 and 13, it says, and you who were dead in your performance, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our sins and trespasses by canceling what we earned, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with all its legal ramifications and demands. This he set aside, nailing them to the cross and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in fact to open shame by dominating, triumphing over them. Friend, Jesus has earned our approval for us. He's performed for us. He did this by offering up himself as a substitute for you, taking your place. The life he lived, he lived for you as you. The death he died is what you deserve, but he took it upon himself to die in your place, to shoulder the wrath of God and the judgment and the consequence that your sin has earned. And when you truly see how awesome and majestic and wonderful and worthy and powerful and holy our God is, and that he totally and completely approves of you, our need to be accepted and approved of by others, our need to perform, it slowly diminishes, slowly, slowly begins to melt away. And this happens to everybody who experiences the saving grace of God. When I think of Grace, I think back to how my wife Jill explained it to our kids, and she picked up this along the way somewhere. But there's a couple times parenting. Uh, we whooped our kids a lot. Um, <clears throat> if you think that's a problem, you're probably the problem. Um, just kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> oh, boy. Um, and don't take what maybe you have experienced as parental abuse as what I'm talking about as punishment. I thank God that I got whooped. I prayed for a spanking. I got whooped by my mom and dad. I'm thankful for it. It's in how you do it. There's, there's a lot to be said here, but it's not abuse. And if you judge me for that, I'll receive it because I don't want to be judged by God who says, don't withhold this from your children. You can work that out with him. But there were times where when we disciplined, just a few times, you can't do this too much, your kids expect it. Uh, be gracious to me. Um, <clears throat> but uh, they, would, they would earn you know, two or three uh, punishments with the wooden spoon. And it would be one-on-one -on -one in a separate room. And there were times where she would feel compelled to teach them something more than just what disobedience is. And so she would say something to the effect of, you disobeyed, it was very clear, you intentionally did this, and you know it. Yes, I know it, yeah. And you know that this deserves a spanking, a whooping. But instead of me being merciful to you and just saying, not now, I wanna be gracious to you. 
and I want to take your punishment for you, and gives the child the spoon and asks the child to punish the parent. And every time when grace hits you, every time the kids would just be like, I can't do that. And there's tears when you begin to lean into like what grace actually is. There's punishment that has to go forth for your sin. You absorb it yourself in what the Bible calls hell, being eternally separated from all that's good. Or you, by faith, believe that that's what Jesus was doing for you. Punishment had to go out. You're going to shoulder it yourself, or you're going to let someone take your place as your substitute. And that's grace. Someone else taking upon themselves the punishment so that you go free. It's not that God says, okay, you're good. He's like, no, you're bad, but I'm going to take it out on my son because there's been a rebellion that has to be punished. This is what Jesus was doing for us. He took our punishment. We get his reward. He earned perfection and righteousness. We get that. We've earned punishment and wrath. He gets that. doesn't make sense. But the lie is that we can prove ourselves to God. But the truth is Jesus performed for us. So much so that when God looks at you, he sees his son. And you get to live every day of your life as a Christian under the declaration, even on your worst day, which is what Christ died for too. This is my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. For those who trust and believe in Jesus, this voice is spoken over you every day. In other words, you're good enough, you're approved, you're accepted. You no longer have to worry about matching up or performing, and there's nothing you can do to mess it up. And as Christians, practically, we fail to believe this so often, and we work to be celebrated by God, to receive his approval, to receive his acceptance. And the approval of God goes up and down like our stocks. And we work hard to exhaust ourselves for what's already been done by Christ. It's already been perfectly settled. God wants you to work hard. God wants you to, to strive to obey with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but not to get his favor. Not for him to be good to you. He's given you his favor. He's already been good to you. Therefore, you get to swing away and obey. It's not to earn something from him because it's already been earned by Christ for you, you now respond by living the Christian life in humble dependence and obedience. It's in response. It's not for response. That's the difference between moralism and Christianity. Christianity is living the Christian life in response to already being made perfect. I'm not earning anything. I'm just responding to this radical goodness and this radical grace. Moralism, I've got to do all these things, live a Christian virtuous moral life, so that God will not judge me, but be nice to me. That's what Christ did for you. You can't do it yourself. Grace is you're fallen, you're cursed, you're condemned, you're deceived, you're scarred, you're scared, you're guilty, you're desperate, you're irredeemable, you're hopeless, you're captive, you're cowards, you're criminal, orphan, rebels, and you're shame-filled, you're blame-shifting, you're lonely, you're abandoned, you're helpless, polluted, dead sinners. And you've catastrophically failed, and you deserve separation from God and his undiluted, pure, 100% wrath and eternal death. We're all this. 
and we stand before God and we're charged and convicted as lawbreakers. We're not waiting our sentencing. We know that. It's been settled. It's been pronounced. We're guilty. We can't cry for justice because we know we deserve it. There's nothing we can do except hang our head in silence. But then through the silence, we hear God speak, and it's his voice telling his son to go live and die on a mission to bring those rebels back to himself. Jesus courageously responds to this mission by becoming the curse for us, taking our sin upon him, receiving our blame, our loneliness, our shame, our wrath, our death. On the cross, the cup of God's wrath towards your disobedience was consumed entirely by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He conquers your sin problem. He reverses the curse that brought upon sin to begin with. God conquers your ignorance, your blindness, your deafness to who he is. He begins to melt your heart, open your eyes. He, he cleanses you from the leprosy of sin. And you declare that God is right and just by punishing you to death, that you deserve it, you know it. But in light of what Christ has done, you get to call out and say, what about grace? And you get it. And you're left with life, a new and better life, everlasting life. You have righteousness and perfection all over you. You've got blamelessness and holiness all over you before God. You've got peace in your soul. You've been adopted into the family of God. You've been saved. You've been rescued. You've been pardoned. And to those who believe Jesus Christ, who love him, who serve him, who follow him, you no longer are the dirty, distant, violent slave to sin. Now, what would happen if you really believe that? How would it change your relationships? Well, you wouldn't have to take life so seriously. You wouldn't have to fear the list of what makes someone important. You wouldn't have to perform. You could rest. You could relax. You could stop pretending you never mess up. You could be honest and real as you walk through confession. You don't have to fight so hard to achieve more than the next guy. You wouldn't have to exaggerate and lie to try to make your story bigger and better to be more accepted and remembered. You could say no instead of saying yes so often because of the high expectations you put on yourself. And you could better receive criticism, allowing it to make you healthier instead of being crushed by it. God is gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. You can rest in your new identity in Jesus Christ. I ask that you stop trying to perform to get God's favor. And I just ask you to look to Jesus today and let that tell you something about who you are. Embrace him and all that he's done. Reject the self-righteous tendency that you might have of thinking that your actions can save you. They can't, but Jesus can. And to those who believe this, we now get to receive communion this morning, the Lord's table. We see the grace of God everywhere, but especially in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what he's done for us. So as we take communion this morning, remind yourself of the grace of God towards you through Jesus Christ. We're gonna have servers on either side of the stage, self-serve stations in the back two corners. There's bread that you're gonna take, which represents the perfect life of Christ that cancels out your imperfect sinful life. And you're going to dip it into the juice or the wine, the red liquid symbolic of the death of Christ and the blood that he shed as he was suffering the punishment as your substitute. This is all grace. So come to the table celebrating God's unmerited, unearned favor upon your life through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we get to proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has lived, he's died, he's risen, and will surely come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of remembering this time of communion and remain with us always, even through the end of the age. Amen. Christian, this is for you. Christian, when you're ready, I ask that you come and take, remembering the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.